Hello, I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN. This podcast is brought to you by RAIN Worldview, the premier digital publication for objective geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Find out how RAIN can help you stay ahead of global events at rainnetwork.com. This goes back to the question of what on earth Russia is doing, and I still don't feel like I quite understand what they're doing. It seems to me like they are repeating um, a, the, the same strategy over and over and expecting different results. It, it's it's broaching on the you know the trite definition of insanity. Welcome to Applied Geopolitics, the podcast series from the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at Rain. I'm your host, Roger Baker. Earlier this year, there was a lot of concern that. Europe was going to face a very cold winter without a lot of supplies of natural gas from Russia. Obviously, the Europeans have managed to uh, make some quite a bit of progress, actually, compared to some of the early dire warnings of what was going to happen uh, to the Europeans. And of course, as we've seen, the Russians then are losing some of the leverage on energy that they thought they were going to be able to maintain. Uh, this is important as we look at how long Europe is willing to support Ukraine uh, and how that, that conflict may ultimately play out, but also in looking at the ways in which Europe holds together internally or whether there are internal stresses within the European Union. So I'm joined today by Jacob Shapiro, who I'd like to welcome back to this podcast. Uh, Jacob is a partner and the director of geopolitical analysis at Cognitive Investments. Welcome back, Jacob. It's always good to be with you, Roger. So, Jacob, as you're looking at Europe, the European gas situation and European energy situation, um, and I know that that we saw early on there were some concerns uh, clearly that Europe would have to uh, adjust its political stance perhaps on Russia or Ukraine, but the Europeans have acted fairly quickly, the rest of the world has acted fairly quickly, and it does seem to be that Europe has a little bit more maneuvering room these days. What, what are you seeing in regards to Europe, say, over the winter, and then perhaps looking a little beyond in regards to their energy security? There's a lot to unpack here, Roger, because there's Europe, there's what Russia is doing, there's all the other countries in the world that are trying to export LNG and take advantage of this. There's countries like China who are on long-term contracts and then are, you know, they're they're getting more gas from Russia, but then they're they're selling their long-term contract LNG back around to Europe. Um so there's really a lot to unpack there. It's also a, a really interesting one from the perspective of of geopolitics because um you know, this is one where we have to suddenly become experts in weather and pipeline infrastructure. Um, and kind of everything else in between. Um, so I, I will say one thing is, um, and this was actually something um, I remember talking with you about many times, which is that it's felt a little lonely being more bullish on Europe than the rest of the world. And in some ways that's disconcerting because you feel kind of alone and everybody looks at you askance. But on the other hand, um, the times that I've usually been right in my career are the times when I was the only one saying something and then it becomes obvious six to 12 months down the road. And I think the issue with Europe is not that they're not going to have a difficult time. And even if the current weather projections are right and Europe has a very mild winter, um, it's not even about the whole winter. It could, If there's just one cold spike in the middle of a very warm winter in general, 
that could be enough to send certain countries into crisis. So it's not like a, a uniformly warm winter is actually going to do the trick for Europe. We also need Europe to have good weather throughout the entire winter and no spikes. Uh, but I will say that I, I think the narrative is that European civilization was in danger of collapsing, that the European Union is going to is going to come apart at the seams, that Russia is going to use their energy leverage to get Germany and France to encourage Ukraine to just accept Russia's conquests in eastern Ukraine. And none of that is happening. Um, so it's not that I don't think Europe is 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 um, problemless going into the winter. I just don't think the problems are as bad as everybody else has said. Um, and it's a combination of things that they've been able to cobble together. They're sourcing LNG from other parts of the world, some of it from China, as, we, as I mentioned about um, them turning around and sending those long-term contracts for a nice little tidy profit. Um, there are certain pipelines that have come online and others that they're rushing through. The Germans and the Dutch are renting new floating LNG terminals. Some countries like Spain actually built good LNG capacity ahead of time. So when you start to put it together, um, most of the countries in Europe are probably going to be okay. The ones that are not are those Central and Eastern European ones that really bet 100% on Russian natural gas. And Germany can afford to source gas from other places. But countries like Slovakia, like the Czech Republic, like Hungary even, those are the, the key pressure points that I'm watching most closely because they have the least room for maneuver versus a France or a Germany or, or some other country. But that's kind of the general lay of the land. So maybe I'll pause and stop rambling there and we can dive into whatever aspects you want. Sure. I mean, as we look at that, as, as you note, C Central Europe or Western Europe um, has a lot more uh, room to, to pay, um, at least in the near term, to pay the higher costs and get them over this hump. Eastern Europe or the frontier of Europe along that, along that Russian frontier, a little less so. But there seems to be also within that a bit of a split between that southern eastern frontier and the northern eastern frontier. If we think about the Poles, if we think about the, the Baltic states, um, They've been cautioning and warning about this over-reliance or over-dependence on Russian energy for a very long time and have at least been attempting to make some adjustments, whereas in that southern part of the European frontier, uh, certainly not so much. Um, do we see stresses or do you see stresses forming between those two parts of, of that forward, forward bastion of Europe as it, as it is uh, up against uh, Russia? Yeah, and I'll, I'll start by, by looking across the ocean before I answer that question directly, which is also the U.S. is intimately involved here. So when people bring up higher energy costs for Europe going into the winter, Europe's been paying higher energy costs relative to the United States uh, for years now. And the United States is talking about exporting more of its LNG abroad to Europe and making up for the shortfall. So now you've got an interesting position where the U.S. can surge exports, but then you're raising prices in the United States, and then you don't have a geopolitical advantage of low energy prices there. So is that something that the United States is going to uh, keep going on further? And I, I bring that up because you're talking about you know divides within Europe. There's also a potential for divides between the United States and between Europe as well, because there are different interests on both sides. Um, the, the short answer to your question is yes, there's a ton of friction within Europe right now, and different countries have different interests. If you are optimistic about Europe's political situation, uh, like I am, you think that what's going to happen here is they're going to figure it out. They're going to yell at each other. They're going to argue. There's going to be sharply worded statements. There'll be articles in Politico about how the Italians are really mad at the Germans. But at the end of the day, they will figure out some way to work it together. And I would take it even a step further. One of the big problems that Europe is having right now 
is the electricity infrastructure between states is not good enough to just send power from where there are areas of surplus to places that might need it. So for instance, I mentioned Spain. Spain has more LNG capacity than most of the rest of Europe combined. But Spain can only really get 10% or something like that of its power production over to France. And then France gets an even smaller percentage, I think, over to the rest of Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, Central and Eastern Europe. If you could have a unified European electricity structure where you, know, you can move power easily from one part to the other with similar rules and similar equipment and similar infrastructure, you could actually you know, uh, deal with the situation much more easily. Um, so I think that what's going to happen is we're going to have the political logic for a more unified power system, and it's going to suck for a couple of years as they build it up, but they'll get there. If I'm wrong, the flip side is exactly what you describe here, where it's going to be every country for themselves, or we're going to have competing factions against each other. And the Spaniards are just going to say, screw the Germans. We're just going to get our LNG. We're not going to help anybody else. The French are going to turn on their nuclear reactors. Uh, countries in Eastern Europe will, you know, start, they'll try to get coal or they'll even turn to Russia and say, hey, is there some kind of accommodation we can have with you? So if that political will is not there and starts to come at the seams, um, that I think is also a very negative sign going forward for the European Union. So there, there's the winter itself, and then there's also how Europe responds to this crisis and what that tells us about the future of the European Union. It's rare you get such a clear litmus test uh, for what the future of a bloc like Europe is going to be. And I'm expecting, you know, I'm expecting drama and pain and, you know, bad growth figures and the whole like for the next couple months. But I'm expecting that Europe will be able to use this crisis um, to grow and have greater relative advantage in the future. And if not, you know, we can watch the data and I can come back on and tell you that I was wrong. One of the critical aspects, I think, that, that is perhaps a little overlooked um, is the question of the Baltic itself. Um, because as we look at some of this LNG import and some of the terminals, it's all designed, a lot of it was designed to be in around the Baltic. As you note, uh, trans-European uh, movement of electricity or even gas, uh, uh, LNG, and then once it's uh, into the pipelines, it's not necessarily easy to move around. We have this question of the constriction of the Baltic itself. Um, we have the expansion of NATO with uh, Finland and Sweden waiting for final approval from Turkey and Hungary, I believe, um, at least as, the, as of the moment of our, our discussion here. Um, and the, the uh, potentially Russian um, uh, subsea uh, attack on pipelines um, within the Baltic. And I think that, that as we look at this energy mix, the question of the Baltic Sea itself is going to be really critical. It's looking at, um, are, is Russia now constrained in its access to uh, the Mediterranean, the, nor the North Atlantic through the Baltic? Um, because the Baltic is now a NATO sea and Russia sits there squeezed in the back. Um, what about Russia's uh, maritime supply routes to Kaliningrad? Uh, and then as Russia, you know, if that was Russia carrying out those subsea pipeline attacks, is Russia demonstrating maybe not just an ability to to hit at subsea infrastructure, but also its ability to disrupt activity within the Baltic itself if it feels constrained within the Baltic? You know, as you're as you're looking at this, what are you looking at up in that northern frontier of Europe? Well, this goes back to the question of what on earth Russia is doing, and I still don't feel like I quite understand what they're doing. It seems to me like they are repeating 
um, a, the, the same strategy over and over and expecting different results. It, it's it's broaching on the you know the trite definition of insanity. Um, I mean, Pol- like you, you mentioned Kaliningrad. I mean, countries like Poland are looking at Kaliningrad and are starting to salivate. They're seeing that the Russians have had to withdraw a lot of their best troops and throw them into the meat grinder in Ukraine, and they're still getting their butts kicked. So why not go after a Kaliningrad? To your point, if Russia is, if it was Russia that was behind the sabotage of the pipelines, and I don't have a good answer on who it was, but I will say that Russia came out a couple weeks after the sabotage and said, hey, Germany, we can still get you some natural gas via Nord Stream 2. That's not normally the thing you do after someone sabotages your pipelines it's a little too overt in terms of uh the leverage that um russia was kind of um or the leverage that russia's trying to use over europe there um so it's it's just kind of uh, i don't quite understand what russia's doing but it does seem like russia wants to do that but the flip side of that and this i think this is a great point that you just made their access to the baltic sea it's already gone um and that's why they've been cozying up with iran and um, you know, Putin has been showing these maps about new trade corridors for Russia that are going to run through Iran and then out through the Persian Gulf and into the Indo-Pacific that way. It's why Russia's had to take Turkey much more seriously than maybe it ever wanted to, because if Turkey gets on the wrong side of Russia here, um, then they can close the Black Sea. And then Russia has that route that is kind of blocked to it. Um, you mentioned the expansion of NATO. We might need to talk about the contraction of NATO, too, because to your point, Turkey keeps... Uh, um, gumming up the works for uh, Finland and Sweden. And it doesn't appear to me that Turkey's on the same page as everybody else in the alliance. I don't know how much longer that works, but that's a different rabbit hole we can go down if you want. So, no, I, I think you're right to point out the Baltic as a critical watch point. But all I see in the Baltic is it's is evidence of Russia weakening and unable to uh, really express its interest geopolitically. And to the extent that it is, it's just shooting itself in the foot. Do, do you see it differently? Am I missing something? Well, uh, to me, I look and I say Russia recognizes, you know, Russia has long focused on these critical access to to uh, maritime routes. And while we can talk about the Arctic and this new opening Arctic, it still doesn't necessarily give Russia the, the you know, the, the infrastructure doesn't necessarily connect to the Arctic to use the Arctic as their primary um, path to uh, international trade or international uh, security access or things of that sort. Yes, they floated their you know, giant submarine with the giant nuclear torpedo out, um, but it's it, it's not quite there. So Russia has long focused on finding ways to make sure these maritime routes are open. Um, the Baltic is going to be critical for the Russians, and, and certainly they are constrained there, but I don't think that uh, that makes St. Petersburg just go quietly into that good night. Um, the same we see down, you know, as you note, the Russians have... Uh, seem to have somewhat uh, taken a backseat to Turkey in the Caucasus, for example, um, perhaps in a way not to completely anger the Turks uh, so that they can keep that access to the Black Sea. The Russians uh, allowed the Turks to help facilitate that grain deal uh, with Ukraine to keep access. So there is there is this maritime component to Russia. Russia's always been this land power that that doesn't have great you know great sea capabilities, but it's always been desperate to keep these access routes open. Um, as you talked about the Iranian route, right? The Russians looking at that that Central Asian route run down through the Caspian to Iran, out into the Persian Gulf and into India. I know they've done at least one test of that route um, to India, um, so that's that re raises the old great game. Um, with the British and the fight over uh, access to to uh, the the Indian Ocean Basin, um, but.
But I think I think that Russia will be focusing on these areas even as they see these other constraints. And the question for me is, does Russia um, at some point have to concede certain areas of land power um, to make sure that they're not completely closed off to these maritime routes? Uh, and that, that's a question I'm not sure, because again, we go into the funding issue for Russia. How does, how does Russia keep its economy going in the long run when a large component of that was, at least in the near term, based on oil and gas and some of the key technology for accessing that oil and gas, particularly in the far north, uh, is no longer available to the Russians due to uh, European actions and American actions. Yeah, again, like so much to unpack there. I mean, you talked about the great game and going through the Persian Gulf. Like that might have sounded good three months ago, but Iran, like who knows if that regime is going to last another six months? I mean, suddenly we have protests there. You look all around Russia's different maritime routes. They're not the big power in whatever region that they have those maritime routes. So if Turkey is definitely building towards a moment that it can shut down the Black Sea and handle a conflict with Russia. They might not be ready for it uh, quite yet, and they want to be pragmatic, but they're there. Uh, Russia's not going to be able to get out through the Baltic if NATO doesn't want it to get out through the Baltic. I've said for years, like, I'm sure that somewhere in, in China's Ministry of Defense, there's a map that has Vladivostok circled on it, and I'm sure the Chinese would like to take that back. The Arctic, also to your point, is completely closed off. I think the other part here with Russia, you're exactly right about their economy. They were um, thinking that this energy leverage was going to translate into political leverage over Europe. That's not really happening. And then meanwhile, the world seems to be going towards um, a slowdown in growth, maybe even a recession in the U.S. economy, maybe a recession beyond the U.S. economy. And so these high energy prices that they've had for a while, it's not clear that they're going to be able to keep them up. Um, you know, Russia and Saudi Arabia uh, announced together that the that the, they were supporting a two million barrel per day cut in production for OPEC plus. Oil's gone down since then, so we're, we're we're lopping off two million barrels a day, and we can't even keep the price up at the current current situation. So I, I'm getting more and more pessimistic about not just the future of the Russian economy, but the future of the Russian state. I've, I've been, you know, on my whiteboard, I have scenarios from, is this another 1917 Russian revolution? Is this another era of warlordism where Russia breaks up and different countries pick off whatever territories they want? Um, it, it None of it looks good on, on paper to me to Russia. It seems like they're depending a lot on national resilience and humor to, to get through um, what looks like a very difficult situation strategically. Right, and, and perhaps their only backstop right now is China, um, and that is a backstop that I think that Russia would rather not have to uh, accept because, as you note, uh, the, 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 the Chinese-Russian border is not necessarily uh, sacrosanct, and Chinese core interests don't necessarily always overlap Russian core interests, and I think we're seeing that stress these days um, in the change of activity in Kazakhstan. Where, where the Kazakhs have, have gone from inviting Russian forces in to help manage civil, civil unrest to effectively telling the Russians that, uh, the Russian government, that, that they're <laughs> unliked and unwanted. Um, and part of that confidence from Kazakhstan, I think, comes from the perception that Russian forces are much weaker than everyone thought they were, but also from the, the economic and political backing of China. And it would seem to me that as Russia is, you know, expending capital on that Ukrainian frontier, um, it seems to be facing uh, increasing challenges and weakening its capacity along the rest of its southern frontier from the Caucasus through Central Asia. And in the long run, that that's an extreme threat to uh, Russia's 
perception of its core interests. I don't know if you saw this. I mean, it's you're right about Kazakhstan, but it's not just Kazakhstan. Did, did you see the... I forget, I forget what the name of the summit was, but all the Central Asian states and Putin were all together having some meeting and the president of Tajikistan went off for like five to seven minutes just, you know, in, in front of Putin's face, just just like criticizing him, lambasting him, talking about how Russia hasn't done anything for Tajikistan. I mean, this is, I mean, Kazakhstan is at least the largest country in the region, has energy resources of its own, wants to play its own game. But even Tajikistan is giving Russia uh, the middle finger in the region. There's also a, a certain element of... Um, you know, Russia, rightfully so, has critiqued U.S. foreign policy and U.S. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan for years, but they've turned around and said and made the same basic mistake. And there's the mistake is not just the decisions Russia has made; it's it's a sense of hubris. When I I don't think I'll get invited to Russia again anytime soon. But the last couple of years, I went to Russia once a year. And one of the things I was always most struck by is I would ask them this question about China. Aren't you guys worried about China? Don't you get that there's a giant on your border? Um, you know, the United States is worried about China. We have an ocean between us, but you guys share a border. You guys have fought conflicts over this. Um, and all the Russian analysts I would talk to would say, ah, like the Chinese don't understand geopolitics. They're the junior partner in our relationship. We have to build them up over time and help them become sort of a larger geopolitical power. Um, there's something demented in that worldview in the same way that I think there's something demented in the idea that Russia could conquer Ukraine. And there's something demented in the view that, you know, Russia can um, use energy as leverage over Europe. And that's going to make Europe want to cooperate with Russia rather than do the exact opposite. So there's just a lot of hubris there with Russia and a lot of mistakes that are being made, um, which also challenges our entire geopolitical method. Uh, Putin has done continually all the things I wouldn't have expected a Russian leader to do, but he's doing them, I guess, because he thinks it's what's in Russia's best interest. I've struggled to to push that through myself in, in terms of an analytical explanation. Well, I wonder too, and this this probably takes us off into a more theoretical realm than than in the immediate concrete impacts. But as we look at this, you know, the the Russian behavior, uh, particularly in this Ukraine crisis, clearly reflects um, either an inability or an unwillingness to assess reality. Right? Um, the 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 choice not to. Uh, gain air superiority before flying a bunch of helicopters full of people into Kiev. The choice not to uh, <laughs> arm and protect convoys and supply lines. I mean, some of those decisions just are, are, are beyond the pale. Even if you think you're going to win and you think you are superior to the opposing force, you just don't do these things. So, so clearly Russia has has uh, appears to have reached the point where Nobody tells Putin anything other than what he wants to hear, and you get that reinforcement, and you get mistake after mistake, error after error, which ultimately either leads to, you know, the 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 implosion of of Russia or some really radical, you know, actions where all of his threats about using nuclear uh, weapons uh, turn out not merely to just be threats, and then we change the whole question of how to think about nuclear conflict and nuclear deterrence. But I wonder if there isn't a similar pattern we're starting to see in China, as we've seen, you know, but but by by choice, the party, the Communist Party, has decided to consolidate power under Xi Jinping. But the more it consolidates, the more that they risk a, a similar set of miscalculations down the road. As again, you you consolidate to the point where nobody wants to say anything the leader doesn't believe. And in the end, for both Russia and China, then, I guess the theoretical question is, 
they've been emphasizing that their style of government, that more, you know, in the West, we like to call it autocratic, uh, whatever they want to call it, I believe they call themselves democracies, but that that style of government is more stable, more socially stable internally, and more stable and long-term thinking internationally, whereas Western governments, the United States, the Europeans, are full of chaos. And in the day-to-day, we certainly see that political chaos um, in the West. But is it ultimately more resilient than these more autocratic regimes that seem to reach a certain point where, as you call it, hubris, um, uh, starts to make them make miscalculations that they that they don't have the flexibility to recover from. You've probably thought more about China than I have, so I'm curious to get your your um, your take on what I'm about to say, which is that it seems to me that China, you're right that Xi Jinping is consolidating control, um, but it seems to me he's doing it a bit more strategically, and there isn't that level of hubris that is there with what Russia's doing right now. Now, the downside of what Xi is doing, that if he if he gets hit by a bus tomorrow, or if he contracted COVID and died from you know complications of COVID, if we want to have a more realistic scenario... He really has imbued a lot of Chinese state power in himself. So there's a lot of risk in one person. But when I think about his background, when I think about the fact that, you know, his family suffered from Mao's, um, you know, never ending chaos and purging of the Communist Party. Uh, it's always seemed to me like she recognizes that the way China functions right now is not working and that he needs a requisite level of control to change the direction of the ship and then maybe hand it back off over once he's been able to make those difficult decisions. And I've also wondered if there isn't some aspect of Xi where he wants to become the lightning rod of all the changes the Chinese Communist Party has to force through to make the economy work um, in the current... Because they've already gone through you know the, all the low-hanging fruit from the export growth model, that's all gone. So they really have to fix the economy and do some major structural things and redistribute wealth. And I wonder if she's not only just taking control over everything, but also wants everyone to understand that the buck stops with him and that when he goes away, maybe he can do a Deng Xiaoping type move or he can pass power to a Deng Xiaoping after him because he has has fixed some of those structural problems and he's trying to do it without all of the chaos that came with Mao. That's a very rosy interpretation of his of what he's doing. He might just be another autocrat who's trying to focus power on himself, but I don't see that. And a great example is, you know, Russia has invaded Ukraine because they had high oil prices and they wanted to use their leverage now. Uh, what is Xi Jinping doing with his power right now? He's facing a real estate property crisis and he's not taking out the credit stimulus bazooka. He had a major challenge with Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan. Wasn't nearly as bad as me and plenty of other analysts thought. We thought we were staring at a fourth Taiwan Strait crisis. It's been pretty pedestrian. He seems to be focused on on other things internally. So I don't see that hubris out of Xi Jinping. I see a more thoughtful, more cautious leader who is trying, I think, to make some changes and then hand off to a next generation. But I could be wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm reading tea leaves there. So tell me if, if you think, if I've convinced you at all that that's what's going on, or you really think he belongs in the same camp with Putin? I, I think it's, it's always risky for uh, Caesar to take power temporarily to fix problems and then assume that he will just give it up afterwards. <laughs> um, that, that, that it's, it, and Putin didn't come in to create chaos in Russia, for example, right? He came in to fix Russia from its historic problems and to rebuild faith and trust in Russia. And there were periods of time in Putin's, you know, 54 terms as president or, or premier or whatever he's been, um, where, where it did look like he had been bringing Russia up to 
back to that big power status, but not necessarily in a way that totally miscalculated the rest of the world. I mean, 2008, even 2014, if it weren't for the shoot down of the, the, the airliner, I think Russia would have come out much, much stronger out of the 2014 crisis. The Europeans wouldn't have been as as willing to to um, put the constraints on Russia uh, as they were after the airliner incident. Um, so so yes, I agree with you. You know, Xi Jinping came in to to be that centralizing force, to be the one who takes the willingness to fix things that a consensus government couldn't. But over time, uh, the, the, the problem is that everyone in the Chinese bureaucracy is judged effectively now on adherence to those core ideas rather than on creative and alternative thinking. And so we're, we're you know, we'll, we'll be watching really closely as this next, uh, you know, this next era of uh, the third term of Xi and, and how does the Politburo work? And are we seeing, um, you know, the, the, any form of factionalism reforming? Um, are we seeing pushback or are we seeing this constant constraint? And I think the place that we see it tactically is in the zero COVID policy, where clearly there is there are strong voices from lots of parts of the Chinese economy and political political spectrum that are are long done with zero COVID, and the the central leadership has made a decision not to alter that. And whether that's based just on you know Xi Jinping doesn't want to change who he is, or whether it's based on the fear of you know even a two percent added death rate in China would be a lot of people. Um, Clearly, there's some there's some tension there, and we've seen it especially strong in Hong Kong's relation with China, which is something that she had tried to strengthen. Yeah, I think that's that's a great point. Um, the zero COVID thing, though, I mean, I I get where she's coming from with that. I mean, China is a country of mostly only children that respects its elders very well. They have a healthcare system that is not that great. Um, they haven't been able to produce a vaccine that is particularly effective. To cut against the you know the idea of she is authoritarian, you would think that if China was this autocracy that was as powerful and um, as centralized uh, as everybody talks about, you would think that they'd be able to get vaccination ra- rates even for their crappy vaccine up. They're not. I think it's like, what was it, 55, 60% of Chinese people over 65 or something like that have gotten the vaccine. That's not a particularly good rate. Um, and one of the confusing things to me is I, I don't understand why China hasn't tried to go and get the vaccine from countries that are making it well. Like I get that you you don't want to swallow your pride here and get you know the vaccine from Pfizer or Moderna or whoever, but then you actually could kind of turn around um, and maybe reopen the economy. But this this gets right to your point about creativity and innovation for all the chaos we have. Um, in Western democracies, uh, we turned around and we created the blueprint of a COVID vaccine. What? I think Moderna or Pfizer said they had it within a couple weeks after they'd sequenced the virus. And China doesn't have that innovation. They don't have that tech. They don't have the type of system that allows you to generate um, those types of things that are transformative. I, I saw a great example of this. I don't know if you... Um, uh, you probably are. I mean, there's a new uh, Ebola outbreak in Uganda, and it's for an Ebola strain um, that we don't technically have a vaccine for. And last week, uh, you know, WHO said they were working with companies to start already experimenting with a vaccine that's going to go after like this Ebola virus. Like that's for all the crazy things happening in the West. We're at like this this incredible time of biotech and things that we're doing to change how we interact with diseases and things are, that are going to threaten us. And China's just stuck. They haven't been able to get there at all. 
So there's a little bit in all of that about um, how China's strategy is not really working. It, it might look good on paper for for Xi Jinping to push the paper, but when the rubber actually meets the road, um, it gets more difficult. But I, I know we're probably running up on time, Roger, but I, I, I would just turn around and ask you, how did the, the transition then to Deng Xiaoping work in China? And do you think there are any lessons for China going forward? Because that's sort of an example, not where a Caesar gave power back, but where you did have a reformer um, who had sort of an iron will and controlled things, but then also let the system be creative and innovative and um, you know, lead with growth for a while. Do you think there's any kind of turn um, for China from that regard? Or it's just, you know, the world is deglobalizing, China's this enemy for a lot of different countries in the West, and that space has been closed, and, and that's why she has to double down. I, I think, you know, we have to look um, at the the difference in the time as well, right? So I'm a big fan of using historical analogy to study, but also of, of taking uh, Ernest Armay's advice and being really cautious about which analogies I use or whether I look at the analogies within the correct context. And if we think about the, the Deng era first, the Deng era emerges coming out of the total chaos of the final years of Mao and the Gang of Four and, and everything else. So it's a, it's a recovery moment. Um, and second, it was a moment where China had recognized both its internal weakness and its international weakness. And that's why Deng comes out with his dictum of bide time, wait, right? Wait until we're strong and capable and then push ourselves out. And Deng effectively chose both of his successors. So he chose Jiang Zemin. He, he identified Hu Jintao. And both of those leaders only had to not do something stupid <laughs> to be guaranteed to be the leader, right? So you had 20 years of continuity pre-planned coming out of Deng, and then that concept of, of collective leadership within there. So he actually, in many ways, was um, uh, made sure that his influence stayed quite a while longer. And if you remember back, you know, Jiang Zemin tried to make his thought um, sacrosanct and nobody really cared. Um, Hu, Hu, Hu Jintao uh, did, you know, just stayed quiet. Um, and, and Xi Jinping is this first return of uh, individualist leadership. And I don't think it's any coincidence that, that the other person who probably could have taken this role was Bo Xilai. And he also had that same super individualistic, charismatic component. But the, the but that gives us the big difference, right? Here we are. Um, to me, the biggest difference is that China's economy is now entirely dependent on international connectivity. Mm -hmm. And and it's it's large and it's doing that that massive transition. And so there isn't necessarily a a logical space to go back to bide your time, quiet, collective self-defense. The challenge for China is that it's it's reached the point where it appears threatening to everybody, but it actually probably doesn't have the capability to fulfill those threats if it ever got pushed. Mm -hmm. um, the, the alternative to the way it's acting would be to try to, quote, bide its time again. But in that sense, it, it I, I'm not sure that it can anymore, right? So do they have to have things like the 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 spat at the consul general in Manchester and beating protesters in the streets in Britain probably they don't need to go to that extreme um, and it's not beneficial for them but I do think that the that the context is such that it would be very hard to see that that shift back to a a quiet 
internally focused China. Um, and, and just as a percent of the global economy, I'm not sure how that happens. And then finally, you know, the, the West has already made its decision to start to um, take direct action against the Chinese economy um, and against its technology and its future. And barring a massive change in Western politics, China now must defend against that. And I don't see China defending against that by giving up or capitulating. No, they can't. But we're all interconnected. I mean, the West has gone after China. I mean, I I think you're I mean, those semiconductor restrictions that came out from the Biden administration recently uh, really went right at the the core of of what the center of all of China's plans for economic rejuvenation are. Um, It's also I mean, I feel like it was just June or July that the Biden administration was tossing around the idea of actually lowering some of the tariffs on Chinese um, on Chinese goods, the, the Trump era tariffs. It's it's amazing how far the Biden administration has come in the last couple of months versus, you know, trying to ease the trade issue to fix supply side issues for inflation to actually doubling down now on the trade war with China. And it's it's going to be a race between you know who has the the IP and the innovative tech versus who actually makes the stuff and has the experience making the stuff for the last 20, 30 years. So the, China, the Chinese make the stuff, but it's designed in the United States. The uh, China's still dependent on European companies like ASML for certain parts of the semiconductor supply chain that would take them years to, to fix the situation. So we're all, we're all kind of stuck together. And now all the sides are kind of going one for each or it's it's all everybody doing things for themselves and to your point like china to get to that next stage of its economic growth it has to ironically be the defender of globalization like the 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 economy that wants the world to globalize even as we're getting protectionist you know u.s industrial policy and protectionist european policy um, I, th- I think that's the one thing china has in its back pocket here um, it can say okay if the west wants to self-segregate and they want to build walls between us and the rest of the world fine let's go out and let's be friends with brazil and south africa and india and anybody else that cares more about doing business and economic growth than about whatever the west is selling um, but to your point, that's that's difficult when all of when everybody's looking at China and thinking, are they going to take over the world? Are they going to take over Taiwan? What are their their true intentions? And that's one thing that China doesn't have a lot of experience in: how to sell the Chinese story, how to sell China as the country that you want to be friends with. Um, because the United States, its soft power has been there for a long time. So the, the the Chinese need to stop making movies like Wolf Warrior and make you know movies about how China is going to make the desert bloom in Africa or something. That would be a good first step for them. Yeah. Uh, so, so, soft power is another topic. Well, well, Jacob, I think we've come to the end of our time. I do want to, uh, let, let, let's pencil in sometime in the future to go over future Russia scenarios, because it's well worth having that discussion. I know that there are already concerns that if Russia is quote pushed too far, or if Russia collapses, you know, the, the disillusion of the Soviet union was a relatively peaceful process that managed the the effective distribution of Soviet nuclear weaponry. It's not clear a dissolution uh, would be as uh, managed and peaceful this time around. Um, and there are huge questions about nuclear arsenals, not just about the, uh, the, the, the future economy of Russia. So definitely something for us to come back and talk about at a, uh, at a future time. Yeah, anytime you want. I mean, uh, can you imagine Kadriov with nuclear weapons? I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay up tonight just thinking about that. Jeez. <laughs> well, anyway, thanks for being here. Always good to be with you, Roger. Talk to you soon. And thanks for listening. We've been talking today with Jacob Shapiro, a partner and the director of geopolitical analysis at Cognitive Investments. For more on how businesses and organizations can prepare for and adapt to geopolitical changes, visit 
BrainNetwork.com and sign up for alerts and information from the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN. That's R-A-N-E Network.com. I'm Roger Baker. Thanks for listening.